This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. We will be looking tonight at John 18, verses 1 through 27. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. And the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? 
Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, as we look upon the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, we look at the betrayal and the trials which he has endured, and recognizing that he did these things for the redemption of your people, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive this word, to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us so that we might be assured and comforted by the gospel, but also faithful to bear witness to his name in a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been working through the Gospel of John for some time, about a year now, and it has been building to a climax. All of the events and the teachings and the conversations recorded in John have been building towards this particular moment, a particular conclusion. The thread that has held all of this book together is how Jesus is the Son of God, sent from the Father to redeem his people from their sins. At many points previous in John, John has spoken about the events to come, that he would be, that he would be betrayed, that he would suffer, and that he would die. We now, as we come to chapter 18, are at the moment of fulfillment, the time where these events, long foretold, will come to pass. Jesus has, in the upper room discourse in the preceding chapters, given his disciples his final instructions to prepare them for the future. His suffering, his death, his departure into heaven. The work that he came to do in his earthly ministry is done. There now remains only for Jesus to finish the work of redemption, to go to the cross, to suffer, and to die. And now these events must be set into motion. In the build-up to this, Jesus will undergo a series of trials before various officials, Jewish and Roman alike, before he will be crucified. And to be tried, he must be taken into custody. We will look tonight at the beginning of this chain of events. We will look at Jesus' arrests, as well as his Jewish trials, as John records them. And then next week, Lord willing, we will look at Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. So we will look at the night of Jesus' arrest and betrayal and his first trials tonight in four points. First, we see duplicity. In verses 1 through 9, Judas's betrayal, long foretold, finally comes about so that Jesus might be arrested. Second, we see dissent in verses 10 and 11. Peter, being rash and impulsive as ever, he tries to stop Jesus' arrest with violence. 
And then after this point, the story splits into two parallel narratives, which we will look at separately. The first will be our third point, which is defense. We see that in verses 12 through 14, and then again in verses 19 through 23, where Jesus stands trial and the case against him is made. And then fourth and finally, we will look at denial in verses 15 through 18, and then in 24 through 27. Peter, who had been so bold just hours before, suddenly loses his courage. So duplicity, dissent, defense, and denial, these are our points for this evening. First, we look at duplicity in verses 1 through 7. After the conclusion of Jesus' high priestly prayer, which we saw in chapter 17, he and the disciples depart to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, John does not record the events in the garden the way that the other Gospels do. He does not record, for instance, how Jesus left his disciples for a time to go pray to the Father concerning what is about to pass. When Jesus did this, as the other Gospels record, he was greatly distressed to the point where he sweated drops of blood. His disciples were far less concerned. They even fell asleep while he was away praying. John skips over this, instead moving directly to the account of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. We find in verse 2 that this garden was a familiar place to Jesus and his disciples. Jesus often met with them and taught them there. And Judas, who had slipped out earlier in the evening, and who, as the other Gospels record, had met with the leaders of the Jews and for the rather modest price of 30 pieces of silver— agreed to betray Jesus into their hands, he would have known the place as well. When it was time to find Jesus and his disciples that night, this would have been high on the list of places to look. Of course, all of this is according to the will and plan of God. Judas knows where Jesus is because God has purposed for Satan to enter into Judas and for Judas to betray Jesus into the hands of wicked men. I mentioned this some time ago, but it bears repeating. As we look at the suffering and death of Jesus, it is easy for us to look at this as merely a story of Jesus' victimization. Bad people did bad things to him. Now, this is true. These are evil men. They are carrying out evil acts against Jesus. But Jesus was not just a passive victim of all of these bad things. They happened to him within his knowledge and control, and according to his own plan. I want you to remember and keep in mind a passage we looked at before, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus said, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So these events that are about to transpire, they are evil. They are the result of the murderous plotting of wicked men. But they are happening. They are known. They are permitted according to Jesus' own sovereign will as God the Son. No one would be able to take Jesus' life from him apart from his will. 
This is not to dismiss or downplay or excuse the depths of wickedness that Jesus' enemies do against him. All of that is real and legitimate. But what it does show is the great love of Christ for us. He knew all of this was coming. In fact, he purposed all of this to come. He underwent all of this evil and suffering voluntarily, willingly, knowing what it would mean, knowing what it would cost, because he purposed to save his people from their sins. And this night of suffering began with the deep betrayal of a dear friend. In verse 3, Judas appears with a band of soldiers that the scribes and Pharisees had arranged for him. They come expecting a fight. They have lanterns and torches because it is dark, and they come armed with their weapons. But Jesus intends to surrender peacefully. We see in verse 4, it is again reiterated how he knows and is sovereign over what is about to pass. Jesus, or John writes that Jesus was knowing all the things that would come upon him. So Jesus steps forward and asks them who they are seeking. Now Jesus knows they have come for him, but he wants it to be known and stated and recorded that they have come for him and nobody else. We will see why in a moment. But they say that they are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, most English Bibles here say that Jesus' response is, I am he. Now, the word he, as a separate word, is not there in the Greek. It can be implied, but there's more going on than Jesus just saying that he is the one they are seeking. What is there in the Greek is the words, ego, a me, I am. He is Jesus, and they would know he is Jesus by what he has said. But he is also here claiming divinity. He is claiming the power and authority of God, even as he's about to be hauled off as a criminal. And we see this power displayed in that when Jesus says this, the soldiers fall to the ground. They would not have done this voluntarily. They were coming to illegitimately arrest a man. They were coming with ill intent. But confronted with the power and presence of God, they fall, they are knocked down in worship, even if unwillingly. It is clear, though Christ is about to suffer at the hands of evil men, that he really does have the power and authority and sovereignty in this situation. Once the guards seemingly gather themselves off the ground, Jesus asks them again who they are seeking, and they again say that they are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says that he has already told them, but he also argues that he should be taken alone, that his disciples should not be taken with him. Perhaps these guards, as they were already about to commit an illegitimate arrest, were motivated to take all of the disciples not only take the leader of this perceived enemy sect, but take all of his closest followers. If so, this goes to underscore just how cold and calloused Judas, Judas's betrayal was. He was willing to sell out not only Jesus, but all the other disciples he had lived and worked with for so long and through so much. But Jesus does not want his disciples taken. 
not only for their own good and protection, but to prove his own words true, as we saw in the previous chapter, chapter 17, verse 12. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. In that prayer, Jesus was asserting that those who belonged to him remained. None were lost. Judas had departed because he did not truly belong. He went out from them because he was not of them. But these other 11 disciples, Jesus purposes to preserve them through the coming trial, and his word cannot and will not fail. But there next arises what seems to be a threat to this. We see this in our next point. After duplicity, we come to dissent in verses 10 and 11. Peter in the way that Peter often does, is not willing to accept what has been put before him. He does not want Jesus to be taken, even though Jesus has told him it must be so. Now, one can understand why. He loves Jesus. He wants Jesus' good. But Jesus has purposed this suffering and announced that it would come to be. What does Peter hope to accomplish? By resisting. And yet Peter resists, or he tries to resist anyway. He draws a sword, and he strikes the high priest's servant. You find out this man's name was Malchus. He cuts off his ear. Now we have a predicament. Jesus has just asked for his disciples to be released, but one of them has now attempted murder against a servant of the high priest. What will happen now? Jesus did not want Peter to do this. Jesus' purpose is to be arrested. In Matthew 26, 52, there is a longer rebuke that Jesus gives to Peter that is recorded that those who live by the sword will die by it. And that if Jesus desired, he could pray for legions of angels to deliver him. But what is to come must come so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. John's record is much more abbreviated, but it gets at the same point. Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away and asks this rhetorical question, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Often Jesus suffering for sinners, his passive obedience is referred to as a cup of the Father's wrath, the cup of the wrath of God, that we deserved, but which Jesus must drink for us. It was a bitter cup, like bitter medicine that none would enjoy drinking, but must be drank. In order for God's purposes to be fulfilled, in order for the redemption of Christ's people to be accomplished, he must be arrested. He must suffer and die. Peter does not yet grasp this, but he will. Now, also not recorded in John, but recorded elsewhere, is that Jesus did heal Malchus's ear. This was important because if Malchus leaves without his ear, Peter probably goes to prison and worse. But as John has recorded, Jesus was not to lose one of those who were his. This would also make life a bit more interesting for Malchus having to reckon with the fact that he helped arrest a man who clearly had supernatural healing power from God. Believing that aside, in order for God's plan to be fulfilled, Jesus must be arrested. 
and he must go to trial. And this brings us to our third point. After duplicity and dissent, we come to defense in verses 12 through 14, and then again in verses 19 through 23. We have this point uh, in two separate sections of this passage where Jesus goes on trial. The story breaks into parallel narratives. There is what is going on with Jesus and his trials, and then there is what is going on with Peter off to the side at the same time, but separately. So we will look at them separately. We'll look at Jesus first and then circle back around to Peter. So we read in verse 12 that Jesus was arrested and bound. Despite Peter's attempted uprising, Jesus is now in the hands of his enemies. His first stop will be at Annas or Ananias, the former high priest. Now, D.A. Carson records, commenting on this passage, that Ananias used to hold the office of high priest. He would have held it from about 6 A.D. to 15 A.D. So we're talking a couple of decades before this time of Jesus. But then Ananias was deposed by Valerius Gratus, Pilate's predecessor, the former governor of Judea. This helps to show the kind of tensions that existed between the Jews and the Romans at that time, and how some of those tensions will manifest in the trials of Jesus. That Ananias gets the first crack at Jesus shows that the Jews still regard him as a leader, and they also resent the Romans for deposing him. Ananias, though he was not officially the high priest, was still regarded by many as such, He was essentially the leader of the high priestly family, even if he didn't currently hold the office. Now, John also adds here a note about Caiaphas, the current high priest. He was the one who had earlier said that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. That unknowingly prophetic statement that foretold Jesus' suffering. These bits of Jewish and Roman intrigue and the rivalry between them helped to set the background for these trials. But the trials themselves are not recorded until starting in verse 19. It appears that the trial here recorded is the trial before Ananias, though it is a little bit confusing as the judge in this case is referred to as the high priest. Again, while he was not the current high priest, Ananias was still regarded by many as such. So Ananias asked Jesus about his disciples and doctrine. Particular questions are not recorded, but Jesus' answer is, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. In other words, Jesus' teaching had been public. He had no secrets. He had nothing to hide. There is something of a rebuke here. Jesus knows that they are asking him questions of which they already know the answers. They themselves were present many times when Jesus was teaching. This is a show trial. It was most likely an illegitimate and illegal trial. Commentators note that the trials held at night would likely be viewed as illegal Legal proceedings were to be done in the daylight, done in the open. But this trial was being done in secret. 
This trial is illegal and it is shameful. It is ironic that Jesus has nothing to hide and yet he is on trial and yet his accusers clearly do have something to hide. It doesn't matter. Jesus will ultimately be convicted and he will suffer and die, but the disgrace of the leaders of the Jews and their treachery against Jesus is on full display. Because Jesus' teaching was public, he knows there are many witnesses to it, probably some even there in the court of the priests. And he, in verse 21, essentially challenges the court to find witnesses to what he has said. They don't appreciate this. In verse 22, one of the officers of the Jews strikes Jesus. This was a bully tactic. This was an intimidation tactic. But Jesus will not falter. He challenges again in verse 23 that if he has broken the law, they ought to be able to lawfully prove it. He is exposing the fact that they can't. The charges and trial against Jesus are false and shameful. This is great evil and great wickedness. Jesus knows it, they know it, and Jesus knows that they know it. But they will not relent. This is the falsehood and evil and slander that Jesus willingly endured to accomplish our redemption. Again, none of it happens outside of his will and his control. But it does happen in such a way that it lays bare the beliefs and motives of his accusers. These were the high priests. They were the ones who were supposed to know God the most and the best, to mediate God's word and presence to the people. And yet Jesus' trial shows just how wicked and corrupt they had become. They think they judged Jesus, but in his own way, Jesus is judging them, laying bare their hypocrisy and evil for the world to see. It is also notable that Jesus' defense, while he does offer a defense, is relatively minimal. It was prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus mounted only a minimal defense, was enough to expose the evil of his accusers. He does not intend to defend himself of the charges. Perhaps if he had defended himself more rigorously, he could have had a fair trial or even been acquitted. That would be to miss the point. Again, Jesus' purpose is to suffer and die. He must suffer and die so that his people may live. But speaking of his people, what happened to Peter? Last we heard from him, he was cutting a guy's ear off in the garden. Let us backtrack for a moment and find out. Our fourth and final point tonight is denial. We see this in verses 15 through 18, and then in verses 24 through 27. Remember back in chapter 13, this exchange between Jesus and Peter in verses 36 through 38. There it said, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So Peter wanted to be bold. He wanted to stand by Jesus until the very end. He had even earlier in this chapter taken up arms to do so. Of course, Jesus would not permit this. Now, the purpose is twofold. Jesus must suffer and die, and Peter cannot interfere. But also, Jesus has greater future plans for Peter. So getting arrested and killed, as Peter seemed to be willing to do, would not support this. So what happened to Peter after Jesus was arrested? We see in verse 15 that he followed Jesus. That is, he went with the crowd that was following Jesus to the various trials. We also learn that he is with another disciple, presumably John, the author of this gospel, who never refers to himself by name. Apparently, the high priest knew John, and so John was able to go into the court and watch what was going on. Now, if the high priest knew John, he probably knew that John was an associate of Jesus, which means that it seems at this point they weren't interested in arresting and trying Jesus' disciples. So John goes in, and eventually he brings Peter in as well so they can watch the trial. But when John brings Peter in, the doorkeeper, who is a servant girl, so not exactly anyone strong or intimidating or armed, asks Peter if he was one of Jesus' disciples. What does Peter, who was so brave and bold and ready to be arrested and killed earlier that night, say? I am not. He denies Jesus for the first time. Next, in verse 18, in the court, the servants and officers had made a fire. It was night, it was cold, so someone built a fire so those watching the trial could keep warm. Peter got cold and joined them. Then we get a break from Peter until later. But then in verse 24, after the trial with Ananias, Jesus was bound and sent to the current high priest Caiaphas, likely in the same general area. For in verse 25, Peter is still standing there warming himself. And some of the other onlookers ask Peter, You are not one of his disciples, are you? But Peter denies it again. He says, I am not. That's two. But next we see that one of the servants of the high priest is there, who, by the way, happens to be related to Malchus. He would have paid close attention, perhaps even saw the dust up in the garden earlier. He recognizes Peter and asks about it. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denies again. That's three. And just as Jesus said, the rooster crowed. Now, we can look at Peter's denial here and we could talk all about his lack of courage his sin in denying Jesus, how bad he was. And all of that's true. 
Peter denied his Lord. Peter lacked the courage he claimed to have. Shame on him. What we also see in Peter's denial, as we have in these other developments that night, is that everything that is happening is happening according to the definite plan and purpose of God. All the details down to exactly how Peter would react to things were planned and decreed by God and were according to the purpose and pleasure of the Son of God who had come to lay down his life for the sins of his people. There are evil things, awful things afoot, and there will be more and worse to come. But Jesus endured all of this willingly, voluntarily, knowingly, out of his great love for us. That's what this is all about. It's not so much about Peter and his denial as it is about Christ and his sovereign will and his great love for his people that he will suffer and die to save them and to redeem them. Perhaps you're here tonight and you have never heard or you have never believed the truth about Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Messiah who offered himself to make atonement for sins. He lived the perfect life that we could not, and he died the death we deserved. He offers eternal life and salvation by grace through faith to all who would repent of their sins and believe in him. The treacherous, the cowards, the deniers, the liars. Jesus' atoning work can save even the vilest of sinners, even the sinners who deny him, even the sinners who conspire against him and put him to death. And that means that Jesus can save you. The call of the gospel tonight for those who hear is to repent of your sins, trust in Christ, and have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. For those who do know Christ, the call is to Take these words of hope, these words of life to a lost and dying world to boldly proclaim his name where it has not been heard, to take the gospel to those we know, those we see, so that they might too hear and believe and live. For it is for these reasons that Jesus suffered these things, why he underwent these trials, and why he would die. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. It was a hard thing. It was a difficult thing. It was evil acts of evil men, and yet it was all according to your will. And he did it willingly, voluntarily, knowing that it was what was needed to save us from our sins. I pray that all here gathered tonight would believe these gospel truths, that Christ died for us to save us from our sins, and that apart from him we have no hope and we have no life. I pray that we would be faithful to tell others about him, to bear witness to his name in this world, and I pray that you would draw all of those who are far off, those whom you have called to salvation, to the knowledge of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.